Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 8 through 17. If you see a province, see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When our goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. He is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. It is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what, what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days, eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. The word of the Lord. Today's psalm is Psalm 127. We will read responsibly by whole verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, their labor is in vain who build it. Unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchman keeps vigil in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and take rest so late and eat the bread of toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a gift that comes from Him. Like arrows in the hand of the warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. He shall not be ashamed when he speaks to his enemies in the gate. Glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our New Testament reading today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and, a gold, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel lesson today comes from Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to all of them, Take care and be on your guard 
against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For now I have nowhere to store my crops. And then he said, Ah, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And then I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to the man, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be now? So is the one who lays up, for, lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the ravens? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes even the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you to drink, and do not be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. These things will all be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. We are continuing in our sermon series in Luke, and we've gone with Luke up through the resurrection and then on the road to Emmaus in this post-resurrection time where he actually revealed himself to a couple of his followers. And that's pretty much the end of Luke. But for the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to be going backwards into the book. We're going to be circling back to some of the parables that he told along the way in his ministry. And this week is one of the more challenging and comforting parables that Jesus ever told. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. If you want to follow along in a Bible but didn't bring one, you can take one of these blue Bibles that's on that low table in the back. And if you, uh, if you don't own a Bible, then one of those blue Bibles is yours to keep as our gift to you. Let me pray as we open God's Word together. God, we ask that this teaching of Jesus, that these illustrations that he used, that they would prick our consciences, that they would hold a mirror up to our lives, and that they would show us the, the true greatness and 
incomprehensible goodness of your kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is the parable of the rich fool. As a reminder about what the the point of the parables was, when Jesus would tell them while he was having his ministry, he had disciples with him, and there were almost always people who were against him, Pharisees, rulers, scribes. And the parables were a way that he could almost talk in code to people, right under the noses of the people who didn't want him to say what he was saying. Parables were sometimes meant to encourage people, sometimes meant to rebuke them, sometimes both at the same time, which is kind of what's going on here. And they were always an illustration of something. And most often they were an illustration of what the kingdom of God is like. So much so that even a lot of his parables even start off with him saying, the kingdom of God is like blank. And so in this case, Jesus was responding to a man in the crowd. This guy in the crowd goes to Jesus, this wise rabbi, well-respected in the, in the community. And he wants him to arbitrate in a dispute over inheritance. He says, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Jesus basically says, who who made me the judge over your inheritance? Why am I your arbiter? Then he goes on to tell a story about a foolish man. So this guy, he says, help me get what's coming to me. Help me get my share of the inheritance. And in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't say, yes, I'll do that. And he doesn't say, no, I won't do that. He goes deeper. He asks a deeper question. He says, why... Why are you concerned about money? He illustrates this in verse 15. He tells all his disciples, he says, watch out. Be on guard against all greed, for one's life is not, does not exist in the abundance of one's possessions. Then he tells the following story about the rich man whose land was very productive, and he had increased in wealth. And he thought to himself, I don't have anywhere to put all this stuff that I've got. What am I going to do? with all this extra stuff. Then he says, oh, I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do. My barns are full, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these crops, sell them, make money, and then use that money to tear down the barns, build bigger barns. Then I can put all the crops in it. Then I'll have a place to store all my stuff. But verse 20, God says to him, you fool. This very night, your life is going to be demanded of you. And so all of these things that you've prepared for yourself... Who's going to get them now? Basically, calling back to the the man who talked about, help my brother divide up the inheritance. This is stuff that he had received because somebody died. And so the question is, if, if if this young man had gotten his inheritance and had then added to it, expanded on it, used that money to make more money, when his time came to die, who was going to get it? And of what value was it? Jesus is saying that's not how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not, or that is how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself but is not rich toward God. Jesus is saying here, in effect, to this, to this man who's asking him and also to everyone who would listen, he's saying that in a kingdom economy, in the kingdom of God, the way that it works is the point of money is not to make more money. The point of money is actually not even security. The point of money, as this, as this parable of the rich young fool, he said, I've got so much now, I can just relax, I can eat, drink, and be merry, because I have all this stuff. The point of money is not to get to a point where you can relax and eat, drink, and be merry. Now, I have to admit something to you. 
Um, this is absolutely one of the easiest topics in the world to preach about, right? Like it's not hard in a 21st century American church to say, hey, you know, we've all probably got too much stuff and we're all probably a little bit too consumeristic and maybe we should be a little more like Jesus tells us to be. This is not hard to do. What is hard to do is actually living that out. And it's, it's even easy to receive this. I've sat under sermons like this before and you go, oh yeah, sure, that's, that's true. I really, I mean, I really shouldn't have ordered that extra pair of $10 shoes from a company that no one's ever heard of off Amazon this week. Like, I didn't need that. Why am I doing this? Yeah, I should really make some changes. And you think about it for a second and you kind of resolve to change and then, you know, by Monday morning you've just forgotten about it. It's easy. Harder to live it out. It's harder to actually do what Jesus tells us to do and actually take the time to rethink our entire attitude towards possessions and money and security and stuff. Everything that we are told about, what our vocational lives are supposed to be about. We heard this brilliantly illustrated in the psalm today. And this is hundreds if not a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. And God was still telling his people the same message. Now the translation that we use today doesn't quite capture the, um, the verse that I want to hone in on. So I'm actually going to read this from the ESV. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early. It is in vain that you go, to, that you go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he, gives, for he gives to his beloved sleep. It sounds a lot like the rich fool in our parable. He's saying, I have too much money. I have too much money. What am I going to do with all this stuff? My storehouses are full. I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll take this stuff, I'll sell it, I'll, I'll make more money, I'll use the money to tear down the barns, build bigger barns, more stuff. Anxious toil, rising up early, going to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. Is that what we're supposed to do with the excess that God has given us? Do you hear kind of the cyclical nature of this? I'm going to take my stuff, I'm going to make more money, I'm going to use that money to get more stuff, etc., etc. It's in vain that you rise up early. Go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Because the end result of this, the end result of this man's life, who's going to live this cyclical nature of accumulation and self-satisfaction, his end result's the same as mine and the same as yours. It's the same as all of us. Death. Verse 20. But God said to him, this is to the parable of the rich young fool, God said to the man, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be now? It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to bed, eating the bread of anxious toil. As I was thinking about this this week, now look, I, I don't actually know if this is the best illustration for this passage, but it's such a great story that I'm, I'm going to put it in here. I'm going to give it a shot. Um, if you look on the front of your worship guide, It's a picture of, of something. This is a real place. It's a picture of something called the Winchester Mystery House. This is a, a real house in San, uh, San Jose, California. It's, now it's a museum and a tourist attraction. And I actually wrote to the people that, that run the museum, and I asked them if we could use this promotional picture of theirs on the front of our church worship guide, and they wrote back and they said, sure. They never asked why we wanted to use it, and I'm not 100% sure that they'd be all that thrilled, but anyway, we've got it. 
So this is a real place, and it is an absolutely fascinating story. This mansion was owned by Sarah Winchester, who was the heiress of the Winchester Rifle Company. And her husband died. The guy who had founded the company died and left her fabulously, unbelievably rich. And she was a very troubled person. And she was told, after consulting a medium, she lived in Connecticut at the time, after she consulted a medium in New England, she was told through the medium theoretically channeling the spirit of her dead husband that she was supposed to move to California and start building a house. And she was also further told, she reported, that the only way that she could stave off the, the evil spirits, the dead ghosts of all the people who had ever been killed by a Winchester rifle, the only way that she could stave this off was by continuing to build the house and never, ever stopping. And that's exactly what she did. She went out to San Jose, California, bought this huge piece of property with an old farmhouse on it, hired construction crews, and they started building. And they didn't stop for 38 years. For 38 years, this house was under constant construction. Something was always being done to it because that was the only way to keep the evil spirits at bay. And so you can actually visit this house and you can see the result. What started out as a simple farmhouse grew to a seven-story mansion that takes up a city block and has 160 rooms in it. And some of them are really, really small because they just needed to build something. And so you'll see these crazy things of tiny rooms or doors that literally lead nowhere. You open it up and it's a brick wall. Or, or windows in rooms that only over, overlook other rooms on the floors below. Or the best part, staircases that lead absolutely nowhere. They start at one place, they arch up, and they end, and they end in the same room that they began in. For 38 years, constant construction. And the only reason that it stopped is because Sarah Winchester died in 1922. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, obviously, this is an extreme example. Not all of us, I don't think, are heirs to a massive fortune who are going to spend all of our time and money on continuous construction projects to keep evil spirits at bay. But part of the reason that this story is so memorable, I think, is that it's not hard to see ourselves in that, maybe just on a smaller scale. No matter what your income bracket is, how, how many of us are in, at least internally, in a constant building project, trying to keep our anxieties about what our life is supposed to be, trying to keep those at bay? But I think that this parable might just be Jesus' explanation of Psalm 127. Jesus talking about what to do when we do nothing but eat the bread of anxious toil. Because... He tells this parable of the rich fool, and then he says, he says, therefore, like thinking about everything I just said, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Don't worry what you will eat. Don't worry about your body. Don't worry what kind of clothes you'll put on. For life is more than the food that we eat, and body is more than the clothing that we, that we wear. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storehouse or a barn, and yet God feeds them. Aren't you image bearers of God, people created to, to be his representatives here on earth? Aren't you, each and every one of you, worth more than ravens? And then he says, can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If you're not even able to do that, 
If you can't even add one second to your lifespan by all this worry that you're doing, then why worry about anything at all? Can any of us add one moment to our lifespan by worrying? And so the problem comes when, when, we, when we look at things and stuff, when we look at what our, our life is, when we look at what, where our security comes from, when we look at it like how we're told to, how the world around us tells us to look at stuff. Because the world around us tells us to look at stuff from, from what people call a theology of scarcity. Right? There's a limited amount of stuff. We have an infinite amount of, of desire and longing. And so we operate in a, in, a, in a world of scarcity, where not everyone can have everything they want. This is what makes people steal. It's what makes people envy. It's what makes people covet. Sometimes, and it happened this week, um, sometimes I'll be in Gus's room, and I'll be sitting there, and he'll be happily playing with some toy. And over in the corner is something that I just, you know, a different toy, and I just kind of idly pick it up and start playing with it. And every single time that happens... The very next thing that happens is he drops what he's doing. He comes over to this toy that he hasn't touched in weeks. He comes over and grabs it out of my hand because now suddenly it's the most important thing in the entire world. Because he has a theology of scarcity. It's understandable. We all do. But that's not the way the world was intended to be. It's, it's actually not how life works in the kingdom of God. And we heard this over and over in the scriptures today. There have been a, a group of our folks that have been getting together for this weekly conversation about theology and art. And they've been doing it by this, this book by Mako Fujimura, who's a, a Japanese Christian artist. And uh, Fujimura is actually the guy who did the illustrations for that giant oversized gospel book that we read out of every week. If you've never taken a look at it, I would encourage you to come up after the service and just flip through it. Absolutely beautiful illustrations of God's word. And so Fujimura, for many, many years, has been talking about God in, as, as this lavish and almost embarrassingly excessive creator. And then he reminds us that we actually are his image bearers. And so one of the ways that we will image God, one of the ways that we, that we reflect that character of God, is that we are naturally creative as well. We are naturally artists as well, each and every one of us. Even if, like me, you can't draw more than a stick figure. And God does not operate out of this theology of scarcity that we find in the world around us. God operates out of what people call a theology of abundance. And so we ourselves are called to be image bearers with that same theology of abundance. And it's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. But in a world where we think that we need this hedge against mortality or against danger, where we think that we... Maybe with our kind of finite and fallen brains, that maybe we just want this toy that somebody else has because they have it and we don't. We have a scarcity mindset, and we show that in, in how, we, how we deal with the world around us and what we do with our stuff. And so here's what, Fujimura, here's what Fujimura has to say about this scarcity mindset. He says, there is not one iota of scarcity in the statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's not one iota of scarcity in that. The God of the Bible is a God of abundance. Therefore, Jesus' preaching addresses the mindset of scarcity-ridden, fear-filled followers, where Jesus says things like, in this passage here, he says, consider the lilies, 
or elsewhere, he says, love your enemies. If, if I need to get as much stuff together as I can, that doesn't make any sense. But in, in, in the mindset of abundance, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. All of these many parables that assume abundance at the core of our lives, all of those things point to the greater love that God has for us. And he then goes on to say something which I think is interesting in, in how do we live this out. He goes on to say that when we are in Christ, it's not like we are horses that are suddenly training to be better horses, right? Like when you become a Christian, Christianity is not good people trying to get better and better and better. Good people, good Christianity is dead people coming to life. And so Fujimura quotes C.S. Lewis. He says that um, it's not that we are horses who are being trained to jump higher and higher or do useful things such as pull a heavier and heavier load. Instead, as Lewis puts it, Christianity means that we are horses who have actually grown wings. So what does that mean? It means rethinking the entire way that we do things. It means rethinking the whole system, rethinking how we are and how the world can work. Because the Bible says that as followers of Jesus, we are united to him. We are co-heirs with him and all the riches that God gives to his people. We heard this in Revelation, in, in the song to the Lamb on the throne. It says that Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and open up its seals because, because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. And that reign is a reign of abundance, a kingdom of abundance. It's a reign in a kingdom where we no longer have to eat that bread of anxious toil because we know where the real riches are. And I think it means like acting like some of the simpler creatures that God makes. This is what Jesus points to. He says, look at the ravens, look at the lilies, you know, look at the birds in the trees, look at the grass in the field. They don't have anything. The ravens don't plant or harvest the the grass in the field can't sow, and yet God feeds them, and God clothes them. It's almost like Jesus is illustrating Psalm 127. Because the rest of that verse in Psalm 127 is this. It says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go to sleep late, eating the bread of anxious toil, because he gives rest to the ones that he loves. Ravens don't have storehouses, but God feeds them. Lilies don't know how to sow, but God clothes them. And he does it gratuitously and lavishly, abundantly, far more than they could possibly deserve. And that's how much our God will provide for us. And this is another way that we can see Jesus' teachings all kind of harmonizing, coalescing together. All the different things that he said in the Gospels, they all point to the same thing and they all work together. Here he's saying that we don't need to worry about what God's going to do for us. We don't need to worry about God providing for us. But in other places, he's always talking about how the rich should show special care for the poor. When the church first started in Acts chapter 2 and then again in Acts chapter 4, Luke goes out of his way to say that all of the people of that church had every, all of their possessions in common. And they lived in complete harmony with one another. 
Why did they do this? Because they knew that God provided for his people. How does God provide for his people? Through his people. It is very, very easy to preach this kind of, don't worry about what you're going to do and what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear because God will take care of you. It is easy to preach that in a, mind, in a, in a church full of people who aren't worried about where their next meal is coming. It might be slightly harder to say that in a church where there are very, very poor people. But the thing is, God has ordained how these people will be provided for. It's not manna from heaven. It's us. God provides for his people through his people. When God says over and over throughout the Bible, care for the poor and the needy, plead the cause of the widow and the orphan, give to those less fortunate, care for the downtrodden, take care of the marginalized, it's so that they can be a part of this kingdom of abundance, so that they can share in this theology of abundance, in this worldview where things aren't scarce. That's basically what our money is for. This man who wanted Jesus to arbitrate for their inheritance, Jesus is saying, that's what your money is for. The rich young fool who wants to tear down his barns to build bigger barns, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. This is what your money is for. It's the difference between eating the bread of anxious toil while we continue trying to build a house that the Lord hasn't planned or working in vain and being part of this kingdom mindset, a new kingdom mindset of abundance and self-giving. And I will admit to you, I am not nearly as good at this as I want to be. I still, to this day, even as I'm writing this sermon this week, I'm still too wrapped up in my own happiness, my own comfort, trying to stave off the feeling of emptiness or, or not being as successful as somebody else, eating the bread of anxious toil. I sometimes, too, act like that rich fool who's planning these bigger storehouses that he's going to make, and all of a sudden God comes along and says, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I still want that toy that I haven't played with in a while, simply because someone else picks it up. And so I have to remind myself with passages like this one that Jesus is not calling us to be horses that train to be better horses. Jesus is calling us into a radical new way of thinking. To rethink how we will use the things that he has blessed us with. Not just to get better at working within the old system, but to be horses that have wings. And, and to just simply imagine what we can do now. And he ends his story the same way that Psalm 127 ends its line about anxious toil. We eat the bread of anxious toil, but God loves to give rest to those that he loves. Jesus ends his passage the same way. In verse 31, it says, But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be provided for you. Then he says, Don't be afraid, little flock. Don't be afraid because your father delights to give you the kingdom. This kingdom of God that, that Jesus has ushered in by his life and death and resurrection. This is given to us as a free gift. All we need to do is say thank you. And then find ways that we can live into being citizens of this kingdom where we already are. 
Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. And then he gives a couple takeaways, a couple applications, which I'll just end with. And this is, this is the challenging part. The, the comfort is that we already have this kingdom. We are already citizens. There's nothing that we can do to have that taken away from us. The challenge is how do we live out a theology of abundance? So Jesus tells his followers, sell your possessions, give to the poor. Make storehouses for yourself that can never grow old. Make yourselves an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief can come near and no moth can destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let us pray. God, we thank you that we get these glimpses and pictures of what living in the kingdom of God is like. And we know that it is so radically different from how the world would tell us to live. And I pray that this will, that this will be a moment where we, can, where we can start to really rethink, where we can start to get underneath the choices that we're making, and start to examine the, the worldview that we have, and that we can live more fully as citizens in that kingdom of abundance, Lord, that you have so richly provided for. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.